Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And our text this morning will be two verses, verses 6 and 7. But we're reminded that as we started this book, that verses 1 to 7 is one long sentence in the Greek. And so we're going to read it. We want to put everything in context as we begin to go through our text this morning. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he writes, as he is moved by the Holy Spirit. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ." To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Join with me this morning as we pray before we go through our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is written in human language for us to understand and that you have given us the Holy Spirit to illuminate these truths so that we might know truth indeed. And so this morning, again, I pray that we will be swept away by the truths that we read here this morning and that we will be once again excited about our salvation, that we will be excited about our God and that our love might grow stronger and that we might be more obedient because we have seen the face of God in the face of Christ Jesus here this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we have been going through this initial sentence here in, in Rome, and I'm sure that Paul had no idea that we would spend six or seven weeks on his first sentence. As Paul has been going through this greeting, he has not just been giving us a greeting, but he's also been giving us a reasons why that we should actually read the book of Romans. And he wants us to make sure that we know that this book is something that we should read, something that is important. And we've talked about how they've written uh, their the book of Romans was written on a scroll that would have been rolled up. And so as Paul, as that letter came from Paul they would have opened that scroll and the first thing that they would have seen was Paul, a bondservant of Christ. And right away, they recognized the author. And so we know that the first reason we needed to look at this book is because Paul was the author of this book. We know his identity and we know that his, his credentials as he lays them out as he is an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, a bondservant of God that would now go for the... Um, will of his master, and then ultimately he was set apart as someone who was to 
bring an official envoy of God to bring the gospel of God. We know that it was about the Son of God because it's about his Son. We know it was confirmed by the Old Testament. This wasn't something new. We knew that this gospel needed to be responded to, that it was for all people, and ultimately the gospel is for God's glory. And so we want to look at this, this book because it's about the gospel that is ultimately going to bring glory to God. Well, that now leads us to our, our really our third reason why Romans matters. Why should we read the book of Mo- Romans? Sorry. And it's because of the intended audience. It's because of the intended audience that he is going to write to. And he really identifies it in two ways. And we're not going to spend a lot of time in the first one, but he really gives us really a historical audience. He tells us who he's actually writing to. But in doing that, he also lays out some spiritual realities about them that are common for us as well. And as we look at those those common realities this morning, we we will see that this book is for us, that this book is actually for us. We will see that we we are those who are called. We'll see that we are those who are beloved, and we will see that we are those who are set apart for him. Now, it's interesting as he begins this book, he, as he begins this section here, he talks about among you, and then he also calls them in Rome. So he says, I want to identify my historical audience. I'm actually writing to the saints in Rome. In other words, among you, you are also called. In other words, going back to verse 5, among the Gentiles. In other words, Paul says, I'm writing to you believers who were called among the Gentiles. You're, the, you're part of that group. You're the part of, the, of that group that God has taken out of paganism and idolatry and has saved. And so Paul says, I, I am writing to you. I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles in much as I am what? The apostle to the Gentiles. And so I'm, I'm writing to you Gentiles This is my historical audience. And now notice he says, to all of you who are what? In Rome. To all who are in Rome. And again, we're reminded that he's writing to the Gentiles who are saved in what? Rome. So we recognize that the church is primarily at this point a Gentile church. Now we trace the church and we said that contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches us, that Peter did not start the church in Rome. Peter was not the first pope in Rome. In fact, what we would understand is is that the church itself was established by those Jews who on Passover and at who were there at Passover and at Pentecost heard the disciples speak in tongues and they recognized and heard Peter's first sermon and were saved at that time. And so those Jews, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 10, and, and Gentile proselytes went back to Rome and started to share the gospel. And like anything else, as the gospel goes forth, people are saved. And so there, was, there started to have a church that started to grow. So this happened around 30 AD. And then they, for the next 30 years, they started to, to share the gospel. Well, as always, as the gospel goes forth, there's opposition. And so we know that the Jews and the Jewish community were causing 
trouble against the Jewish believers because they didn't like them proselytizing or evangelizing. And so at one point, the Roman emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews out of Rome. They're causing too much trouble. Get them out of here. I don't need a headache here in this city. And so for the next five years, the Jews had exodus and the church primarily was Gentile. In about 54 AD, Claudius died and then that edict was taken away and the Jews began to filter in. And so this is about three years after that, that this, Paul is writing this book after the Jews have come back in. And so this is who Paul is writing to, this historical audience. And you might say, well, that has nothing to do with us at all. That's <laughs> a historical audience. But we know that Paul actually wrote and had his books given to other churches and, and were told to read those books. So we know that he didn't always intend his books just for one particular church, but those truths were for all churches. But you might find it interesting that we actually have some cultural commonalities with Rome. If you were to look around and you were to say, well, what, what is like Rome here? This is particularly true of the United States, but certainly there are imprints in Canada. But do you realize that when you go to the mall and you're walking on the second story of that mall, you're, you're not walking on a 20th century invention. They had two-story malls in Rome. Didn't know that. They also had fast food places. I'm starting to like that place already, <laughs> right? They had fast food places. So there, there are many things that we, actually, that we have in common culture, that we have much of our, our, of our legal system and our governing system is related to Roman law and, and the Roman setup. Unfortunately, much like Rome, and if you'll read the fall of Rome, you'll start to see that our society is going down the exact track of Rome as it fell and it fell into moral decay and our, and our culture is the same way. And so we could say that really to some degree our culture is sitting on the underpinnings of the Roman culture. And so we have somewhat a cultural uh, equality or, or a cultural similarity. Unfortunately, spiritually, we are going down the same track. But not only do we have a cultural, shared cultural idea, but we also have a shared spiritual identity with the Roman church. In other words, we have some things as he addresses them here that are true of all believers of all time. And so as he writes this and, he, and as he identifies these common spiritual traits, we recognize that therefore this book is for us. And if we're reading this book, that as a believer, we have these same things. And therefore, it was applicable to the Roman church and the Roman Christians. It should be applicable to us as well. And so we'll see this morning those three spiritual, shared spiritual realities that the Roman church has with us or we have with them. If we look at verse 6 in, in Romans chapter 1, the first spiritual reality is that we have with them is you also are the called of Jesus Christ. 
In other words, we've been called to himself. Secondly, in verse 7, we are called the beloved of God. In other words, we are, we are those who God has set his love upon. And thirdly, he says in verse 7, we are called as saints. We are set apart as holy ones for him. So we are called to him, we are loved by him, and we are ultimately set apart for him. So the first spiritual reality, notice verse 6, we are called the called of Jesus Christ. We are called the called of Jesus Christ. God calls us to himself, uh, and you'll notice in verse 6, among them, that is among the Gentiles, or among the non-Jewish pagan and among the idolaters, you were also called of Jesus Christ. The reason these believers were scattered across the city and that there were believers scattered across this city is because of a work that God had done. God had called them out of their pagan religions, he had called them out of their rebellion against God, and he had called them against their hostility to him, and he called them to himself. Remember, Paul used this word call when, back in verse 1, to refer to himself as being called, what, as an apostle. And in the same way that Paul had been called by God to be an apostle, he had called these believers, and he's called all believers to himself for salvation. In other words, salvation is a divine act of God. It is a divine summons. It is a divine summons. It is a summons that is calling you to salvation and an act of God. Now notice Paul says, we are called what? Of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that we were called by Christ. All right? The rest of the New Testament makes it clear that it is the Father who calls. Colossians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship, what? With his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, we are called to Christ. In other words, the Father called you to what? To belong to Jesus Christ. This is why you're a Christian today. And that's a heart of what it means to be a Christian. God has called you to belong to his son. That's why Jesus has become, notice this, our Lord, verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, because we've been called and we are in the son, he is now our Lord. Now, the word call is used two separate ways in Scripture. We have what we would call an effectual call of God, and we would call, say we have a general call, a general call. So in Scripture, there is a call to salvation that goes out to all men everywhere, where the gospel is proclaimed, people are called to salvation 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. This is that general call where the gospel goes forth to everyone and it is a call to come to salvation. Acts 17.3, 
God has declared to all men everywhere that they should what? Repent. In other words, there's a call and an invitation in the gospel that goes forth and it goes forth and it's given to everyone. That's why he said, go into the world and what? Preach the gospel. He didn't say go to to a special group or just some. He said, go into the world and what? Preach the gospel. In other words, there is a gospel call that goes out to everyone. It's a call to turn to to Christ and to be saved. But there's another call that is given to us in Scripture, and it is called the effectual call. It is effectual because it is effective. And this is where God reaches out powerfully, irresistibly, to save, to bring salvation, to regenerate the unbeliever so that they will turn in faith and repentance. I want you to listen to the Westminster Confession or the Baptist Confession in 1689. They're both the same. I don't recommend either one totally, so be careful. But they've got... But I, I, but I like what they say here. To whom God has predestined to life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time to effectually call him by his word and spirit out of a state of sin and death, which they are in by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. All right. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away the heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his mighty power causes them to desire and pursue that which is good. He effectually draws them to Jesus Christ yet in such a way that they come absolutely freely being made willing by his grace. And that's the effectual call. It is a call that once it is made, is never not answered. He called you out of darkness, what? Into his marvelous light. He did not call you to come to the light. He called you, and that is where you came. Paul comes to this, and we're going to get to this later, but we're going to do a preview in Romans chapter 8. It's a familiar passage to us, but it is one that, that we must understand the significance of. And we read it this morning, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We could really call the called. There is a group of people who are called according to his people purpose. Now, why, why do things turn out good for them? Well, that's explained later on. And, P- and Paul now describes all Christians, those who love God, those who are called, for whom he foreknow, verse, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, those God who he elected in eternity past, those that he called to himself, that he chose to do that to. He also predestined, he set their destiny, right? He, he set, he determined where they would go. He says, to be conformed to the image of his son. Those he knew intimately in eternity past. 
And the idea is he knew individuals here. He, it wasn't like he just knew about people, but he foreknew. This, is the, this, this word knowledge here is the same idea as when Adam knew his wife. It wasn't some casual knowledge. There was an intimate knowledge of who they were. He said he foreknew them. He, he therefore determined their destiny to be conformed to the image of his son. And so he said, when I chose you, I I chose you to be like my son. I wanted you to be in the image of my son. And those whom he predetermined in Christ, what? He called, and these whom he called, he justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. We call that the golden change of salvation. There's no break there. All that he foreknew, he predestined. All he predestined, he called. All that he called he justified and those he justified he says you are as glorified you are as good as in heaven it's present tense in other words it's as good as this if you're already there it's done the chain is unbreakable This isn't some general invitation that everybody can can refuse. It is a irresistible, effectual call. It's effective because it, it, it accomplishes what it sets out to do, and that is to save those whom the Father has chosen. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He called you into that fellowship with his son. Notice verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles its foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And there you can see the the broad general call and and the effectual call of God. He says, Those who hear the gospel, the unsaved in their natural state, to the Jews it's a stumbling block. How can the Messiah die on the cross? That's foolishness. How could God do that? And to the Greek, how could God be a man? Everybody knows that the flesh is what? Dirty. And so they said, that's foolishness. But to those who are the called, that group... There's a specific group, the called, not the call, but the called, a specific group of people, both Jews and Greeks. God is saving from both, both nationalities or both ethnicities. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, this brings salvation. For those who would normally reject it, it is now the power of God to bring them salvation. Now, we can keep going here in verse 26. Who does he save? Now, there's an exception clause here, so I'm I'm sure some of us will take this. Uh, For consider your calling, brethren, right? Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. So if you're a believer here today, more than likely what you're falling into that. Not mighty, might, not, 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 not wise, not mighty, not noble, right? But instead, now listen to this, the foolish, the weak, the base things, the despised. Wow, that hurts. 
But what a gift, right? What a gift. And he says, so that what? No man may boast before God. God wants all the credit for salvation. He will share his glory with no one and he will not share his glory here. And then he says in verse 30, just in case you're unclear, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he called you. The Father called you and you are saved. Well, again, we can keep going. First, Second Thessalonians 2.13, we learned something else about the calling and we touched on it. This, this effectual calling, and it's an effective, right? It's able to accomplish what it sets out to do. He says in, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. He selected you in what? In eternity past. Through the sanctification of the spirit, by the spirit of faith and truth. How does he do that? How does that call come? Do you, do, does it just like just fall on you? How, how do you know? Do you hear a voice? No. He says in verse 14, it was for this he called you what through our gospel that you may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it comes, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the what? The word of God. You've got to hear the gospel, right? And the Holy Spirit takes that gospel and he regenerates your heart, gives you understanding of it, and you come in faith and repentance. So God doesn't just whisper in your ear. He sends the gospel, the truth of the word, to you, and he calls you through that. The good news is, because he calls you, because he initiated salvation, because it's his calling of you, because he eternally decreed that he would save you, that means that he will finish your salvation, complete it. You can't, you can't get it and lose it. You didn't start it. You're secure in him. He said in 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Right? He, will, he who began a good work in you will what? Be faithful to complete it. We know those verses. He will complete it. No human being has the power to will themselves to salvation. No person has the ability to change their desires. No one has the ability to make themselves willing. The only way that can happen if the Father draws him and brings him in. So today, if you're a believer, it's because this happened to you. It's not because you made a wise choice, not because you're smarter than everybody else, not because you have some insight that nobody else has. It's because God called you. He brought you to yourself, to himself. He brought you through the gospel message and he called you to Christ. Well, there are several implications of that. 
if he's called you to, to Jesus Christ, Paul says in Second, First Thessalonians 2.12, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He says, God called you into his kingdom and glory. He's called you to be with him. He says what? Now walk in a manner worthy of it. He called you, right? Ephesians tells us, walk worthy of your calling. We are to now start to walk. And that means that the, the truths of God now should be going through our lives and it should be affecting every single thing in our life. We are no longer who we once were. And this means every year of your life, how you work at work, how you treat your spouse, how you interact with your family, how you interact with your neighbors in your world, what you do in your spare time. All of those things are affected. We are to walk worthy of our calling. He called you to himself. He called you the Lord Jesus Christ. He called you to be like Jesus Christ. Act that way. Well, there's another reason, another implication, in the, and it's this. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now wait for this. So that, here's the purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim him. Proclaim him. How can you not proclaim him? He called you out of darkness. He called you from a, a position where you were hopeless and under his wrath. And he says, now proclaim his excellencies. We must be about the king's business and we must be about proclaiming the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ to one another and to a world that is lost. And we, He deserves his name to be lifted up. Let us share his name. Let us proclaim his excellency. Let us share the gospels with others because as we said before, he deserves that. His name deserves to be proclaimed. And we need to be those who are passionate about his glory as he is. Well, we've seen, first of all, that we are called to himself. Second apart, we are beloved of God. So you've been called to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father at some point through the gospel message called you to himself and he saved you. But you might ask yourself, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he call me? Why would he pick me? When you think about your own salvation, maybe there's a, there's a picture of that and you, and you say, why would he pick me of all the people on the earth? Well, Paul gives us that answer. And it comes from that second spiritual reality. It's because God set his eternal love upon us. In other words, if you're saved today, it's because God set his eternal love upon you. This is the motivation why he called you, because God is love and he loved you. 
Literally, this text reads, to all the ones who are in Rome, beloved of God. It's a staggering statement, really. He's saying, of all the people scattered on the, pro- on the planet, and clearly he says this to the, the, to the saints in Rome, of all the people in the city of Rome, he, chose, he loved you. He, didn't, he doesn't, didn't love you this way. He didn't love everybody this way. We know that God certainly passed over sin and that God in his common grace to all men allows men to experience good things. People eat. People have a roof over their head. People are clothed. People often have much success in life. But God has a special love for his own. He has a special love for those that he calls and and that love he places upon them in a saving way. 1 John 3.1 puts it this way, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called what? Children of God. He set his love upon us. It's different in magnitude than, than he has for the whole world of humanity. John 3.16, when it says, for God so loved the world, he's talking about the world of humanity. And God has a general love for mankind that he created in his image. But he has a special love for those whom he has chosen to make his own. John 13.1, Jesus, as he is in the upper room discourse, he says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, what? To the end. To the end means completely. He loved them comprehensively. He loved them perfectly. That is how he loved his own. So God loves all mankind in the sense that he gives them common grace, but he loves his own in a special electing, saving, and adopting way. It's a unique love. He says in Romans chapter 5, For while we were still helpless at the right time, verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he goes on in verse 7 to say, You know, listen, there are human beings who will give their lives for people. But he says this, God demonstrated his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. That's the ultimate demonstration of God's love. He died for us. While we were yet sinners, he reached out and placed his love upon us. His love wasn't something that was sentimental. It was something that caused him to move and to ultimately to save us and to die for us. I think sometimes these truths are so familiar with us that we tend to go over them very quickly. And we're going, oh yeah, I know that. But God sent his unique, begotten son, one of a kind, to die for us and to demonstrate his love for his own. You see in Romans 8.35, Paul is talking about the troubles and struggles of this life and he says, 
who will separate us from the love of Christ? That the love that Christ has for us. And then he lists some of the things we encounter in this life. Tribulation, distress, persecution, natural disasters, personal disaster. Listen, none of those changes the love of Christ for us. In verse 37, in all things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who what? Loved us. And then verse 38, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that can separate us from Christ's life, nothing that can separate us from the Father's love, nothing. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. See that? Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. The reason you sit here this morning with new life in Christ and the reason that you are spiritually alive is because of the great love with which God loved you. It motivated him to make you alive. God was not obligated. God didn't just somehow think that he had to out of justice. He did it because that is his character. And it, ultimately your salvation is resting in his love and his electing love for you. What's the goal of his love? Well, he says... He decided to adopt us as his children. Look at Ephesians 1.3. He chose us, that is every believer in Christ, when before the foundation of the world. Why? What was the goal? He wanted us to be holiest and blameless before him. So he wants us to be like Christ and reflect his glory. He predestined us to himself. And then he decided to adopt us. He decided to adopt us as his children. Now, when you see, there's several things that we want to look at. When you, when you, when you go to adopt a child, at least a lot of times you go and, and you go and you look at the child. Now, there's several things that we want to recognize. When you adopt that child, that doesn't mean that the rest that you are responsible for the children and the, the behavior of the children that you leave behind, right? Those children continue to sin and continue to do what they're going to do. You're not responsible for that. Neither is God as he chooses us and adopts us. But there's a difference between, often between how we adopt humanly and how God adopts. Often parents will go and they will look at the children and they will, they will pick one that they think is cute, right? And there, there's nothing on a, human, on a human level to do that, right? But you go, you, you find the one that fits with you and, and you find something attractive about that child and then you decide, okay, we're going to take that one. But God's not like that. When he adopts, he doesn't go and find the cutest ones, right? He goes and finds, well, I don't want to say that. <laughs> but he chose, chooses you a part of anything of value of you. He didn't look at you and say, oh, you're so cute. I just want to pinch your cheeks. I just can't wait to make you mine. He didn't do that. 
Well, why did he set his love upon you then? Well, it wasn't because you were great. Remember when he chose Israel, the nation of Israel, he didn't say, well, you are mighty and strong. He said, you are the least of all people. And again, we must recognize, as, as if you just flip over to Romans chapter 9, God gives us a very clear explanation of this. He speaks and he says, you know what? It is written in verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay. And the idea there is, is not like hatred is I hate you, but rather I passed over and, and, and chose someone else. In other words, uh, it's, it wasn't an act of hatred, but it was like I preferred this one over the other one. And so he goes on to explain it, and it's very, very clear. What shall we say then? Is there no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Down to verse 18. So then he has mercy upon whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me, why does he find fault? For who resists his will? In other words, it's not my fault. I'm a sinner. It's no fault that I'm rebellion to God. I was born this way. On contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this way, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make, one from, this, make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for common use? In other words, guess what? What if God was willing to obey and demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for the destruction? In other words, God doesn't explain it. God says, I'm God. I, have, I am the potter, you are the clay. I'll decide what's honorable. I'll decide who I'll save. I'll decide who I don't. I'll have mercy on who I want. I'll have compassion on who I want. I don't explain it to you. Remember, he says... Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? It's because I chose. Because I chose. I don't, I don't answer to you. Ephesians chapter 1 gives us a little bit where he says this in Ephesians chapter 1. Just as he, in verse, beginning in verse 4, Paul Paul writes, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, uh, before him. Now this phrase, in love, should go with verse 4. He says, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to what? The kind intention of his will. That's it. He determined it. Verse 11, and we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after what? The counsel of his will. That's it. God, by his will, for his purposes, chose us. There's nothing lovable in us. There is nothing desirable or attractive. Absolutely nothing to deserve that. He simply put his love upon us. Now here's, <laughs> it gets better. John chapter 17. 
Jesus is in, again, in his high priestly prayer. He says in verse 22 and 23, Jesus is praying, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, speaking of his disciples, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have what? Loved me. And he says in verse 6, And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Wow, he loves you with what? A love like he loves his son. It's a mystery we can't fully grasp, but God's love for his people is an extension of his perfect eternal love for his son. To be in Christ is to live in the love of the Father, in the love the Father has for the Son. It's not simply that God loves his people despite their sin. He loves them because his Son is righteous. He loves them even as he loves Jesus. The love which he has loved his Son is now in them. God looks on his people. He sees the righteousness of his Son and is delighted in them. He sees you like you have lived Christ's perfect life. Imagine how deep the Father's love is for us. Well, application, right? How can we not praise? How can we not just lift up our, our, our voices and our hearts and worship him? How can we not obey Right, Ephesians 5, 2, we read that. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. It should motivate us to obedience. Walking in love, right? What is love? If you what? Keep my commandments. God's love should motivate us. Be holy as I am holy. 1 Peter 1.15. Well, we're on our last point. We've been going long, but we will go quickly through this. To set apart for God. This is the third, the third thing. Not only have we been called to him, not only are we loved by him, but we are set apart for him. He said is loved upon us. Romans 1.7. To all who are beloved in Rome, called as saints... We are called as saints. It's a divine act, a divine call, and that divine summons. And this is Paul's normal way of speaking of believers. This is what a Christian is. They are a what? A saint, a holy one. Now, now listen very carefully. He is not focusing on your behavior. He's not focusing on your behavior. He's focusing on your spiritual position. And this term may have been skewed by, by the, 
Roman Catholic Church and its use of saints and those who are special saints, people who are specially set apart for God because they've worked for God and they've been very good in their behavior. But this word is not used for some special group of pious super-Christians, those ones who just somehow got it all together and therefore by their life are called a saint. And there's been confusion over this term, and we'll look at it, but how can we then be constantly sinning and be saints? How can we be holy ones and still at the same time sin? And this is confusion that has been brought in the Roman Catholic Church because there has been a confusion between positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. In other words, what Paul is talking about here is not you becoming more Christ-like in your walk, but being set apart for God as a holy one, set apart for his service at salvation. And that is positional sanctification. In other words, you were set apart for him once for all. 1 Corinthians 6.11, such were some of you, but you were, what, washed. He says, here's all the sins that were, you used to do. This is what used to characterize you. He says, but some of you were washed, past tense. You were sanctified, past tense. You were set apart, past tense, once for all, for all time, you were set apart to God. This is not something that ever changes. And he does that at the moment of salvation. And we must understand that this sanctification is is something that is God setting you apart at salvation. There is progressive sanctification, but that's not what he's talking about here. And he says, "I I have set you apart, an act of love, to call you to myself so that you will be set apart for service for me. You are set apart now away from sin and to glorify and to serve me. We've already been set apart. We've already been set in his service and so we're called to act like it. He says you are to be holy set apart. We read 1 Peter 1.15. In Ephesians chapter 5, again, he lists all of the sins, and then he says, don't do these things as what is improper among the saints. In other words, you've been called as a saint. You've been set apart for God. Your life now is dedicated to his service. It's dedicated to being like Christ and obedient to his commands, and therefore your life must reflect that. So we recognize with this commonality with the Roman church that this book is appropriate for us. We must listen and we must read it because if it was to the saints, the called ones, the beloved ones, and those set apart for himself, then this book is for us. Now notice Paul completes his greeting with his normal blessing here at the end of verse 7. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father who called you, you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, grace to you. Now this word grace here 
It's not, he's not saying grace as in coming to salvation, though that certainly was part of God's grace. But he says, really, grace is the God, quality in God that delights in doing good to those who deserve exactly the opposite. And Paul says, now God has saved you. God has called you. He's set his love upon you and you are a saint. And he says, now I want you to continue to experience wave after wave of the goodness of God as it pours over you, even though you don't deserve it. And he says, this is my desire for you. God delights in doing good for his children. And Paul says, I want him to continually do this for you. And I want you to continually experience God's goodness. And then he says, peace. And we could say that this is really, we have peace with God. This word here can mean to have peace as if, which we achieved when we came in salvation. In other words, when we were enemies with God, we were at war with God. And when we came to salvation, we, we were no longer his enemy. But here, I think he's using it in the, in the typical Hebrew sense. It's kind of equivalent to the word shalom. And he says, I want you to experience the ongoing positive benefits and blessings that come from God. This is what I want from you. I want you to experience his peace every day. I want his peace to overflow in your heart. I want you to be set in his peace. You know where your soul is going. You know that your relationship with God is good. And whatever the circumstances of life, you can cling to him. And the peace that passes all understanding will guard, what? guard your heart. It will guard your heart. And Paul says, this is what I want for you. I want you to experience this. Paul prays that God will continue to extend his grace and peace to them. And notice verse 7, that he will do this through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Every time you receive any expression of God's grace, every time you experience any divine blessing, any time you know any of his peace, it's because it's a work of Jesus Christ. His past work in his life and death and resurrection, his present intercession on our behalf, it is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ that has brought us grace and peace. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can experience your grace and your peace. Not because we are worthy, not because we have done something to deserve it, but simply because you called us, because you set your love upon us and made us yours and set us apart for yourself. So this morning, we want to just praise you and give you all honor and glory for so great salvation in your name. Amen.